Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Sky Playstead, a course coordinator and tutor at the University of Queensland. Sky, thank you, com- thank you for coming on Lost in Citations. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Thank you very much for the invite. That's um, very exciting. Yeah, we've been trying to arrange this for the better part of a year as things go and our, our busy schedules. So I'm glad we're able to finally meet up. And the article that, or a chapter, I'm sorry, that we're going to be discussing today is from the Rutledge International Handbook of Autoethnography in Educational Research uh, from Rutledge. And the chapter, They Have Lessons to Teach Me, Exploring Critical Reflection and Autoethnography in an Australian Adult Migrant English Program. Um, has this uh, book, um, is it already out in, on the shelves? Uh, comes out, I believe, in November, Jonathan. We just, um, all the proofs are in, so we just got sent the, it's being advertised at the moment, so it's um, coming out soon. Cool. All right. Well, when we have a link to share, we can uh, put that on the website as well. Um, and people can also find you online. Um, I, the reason how I came across you is through the, the Jout Mind Brain Education SIG group. And, uh, they, I, I had Curtis Kelly on the podcast a few times, who, who's a great, who's a great guy and a great academic, great leader. And he, uh, had talked about the think tanks in the past. And I, and I, I'd seen your name pop up on some of these, uh, monthly issues. So I guess I'd kind of like to start with that. When I first saw your name on the think tanks, I thought you were, uh, someone living and working in Japan. So how did you get associated with the, the Jout Mind Brain Education SIG? Yeah, that is a that is a good question you would ask. But um, actually, I met Curtis at a conference, the Actor Conference. So our main TESOL affiliate here in Australia is the Australian Council of TESOL Associations, or ACTA. And uh, in fact, our last conference that we we've had to delay a few of them. So the last real live one we had was in 2018, and that's where I met Curtis Kelly, who um, had come across then from Japan and. Had done a presentation on storytelling, as he does, Curtis, and everyone, there were, there were lots of people, and the vast majority of us were from Australia. Hmm. Uh, and the majority of us worked uh, in this, in the AMEP and in schools, and um, so not that many connections with Japan, but we all went and saw Curtis, and a lot of people were talking about his presentation afterwards because he had this really, um, holistic wonderful approach to talking about the brain and what's happening and what what stories do and how we can use this in our pedagogies Uh, and I actually got talking to Curtis then he'd mentioned this these think tanks and because my background is in music um, and language teaching and a lot of music as well Curtis said oh you want to write for our think tanks we got talking about music and how music works and I, I kind of said well I'm happy to give it a go I don't know anything about the brain (laughs) um which so it was really lovely to talk and so from then that was 2018 and I was doing my master's but um yeah not that advanced academically and I learned a huge amount about writing processes through my involvement with the think tanks and the editors and Curtis and Stephen Ryan all these wonderful people but I, I learned kind of on the job about um, all these connections that were happening in the brain. So every time I'd write a short article, I was teaching and so I'd be thinking then about what's happening in my class with my students and then um, finding all these 
things that I'd never learned before um, and why these things were happening in the classroom, so why music was so powerful and why narratives and um, reflective work were so powerful and how this connected with the brain. And at the same time, I'd be emailing and part of the discussions and learning from uh, these JALT, the think tankers who were so experienced uh, and have been in this area for a long time. So, it, um, yeah, that's how I kind of got involved with Curtis and the team. It sounds like we have some similarities because my background is also in music and I'm also coming to the the research area of my career uh, relatively later in life um, after, I mean, you you mentioned in the paper that you'd been teaching in schools for about 20 years. Um, So I'd kind of like to get your your background. Um, How did you end up, I guess to, to end your story, how did you end up transitioning into doing graduate research in 2018 and deciding you wanted to do a PhD? And and then with within that story, maybe what led you to, you mentioned AMEP, and for people that haven't read the paper, that's Adult Migrant English Program. So um, take us through your background. How did you end up, you know, teaching through, you said the local schools in your area, and then what made you want to get a master's and, and what, what led you to the AMEP and and the PA, all that. It's very interesting to me. Yeah, oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it has been a real long journey. Um, so I, uh, as I said, I trained in music. I play the cello and I, so I trained as a musician um, and also actually studied, one of my majors was ethnomusicology. So I think I always had this kind of ethnographic bent in my own um, mm. interest set. Um and so, and I also majored in German as a, an additional language wow. at UQ, actually, where I teach now. Hmm. Uh, so that was my undergrad, and then I did my diploma for education and uh, registered in Queensland. And I've always taught in Queensland. Um, so I taught in primary schools and in high schools. And because I had these two different areas, um, I had a lot of um, variety, I guess, throughout my career. So I spent the first 10 years or so teaching German language in primary schools. Um, and then uh, after uh, we have four kids. So after my first daughter was born, I actually took quite a bit of time off and then uh, returned part-time. And so since then I've done various um, kind of part-time roles, but most of that, the second half of my school career, I guess, was um, mostly in music teaching. So teaching instrumental music, teaching the strings, running, uh, teaching in classrooms, um, teaching singing, teaching choirs, all these kind of things. Um, And then um, got to the point, um, actually, it's really quite a taxing, physically quite a taxing um, role teaching in music in our primary school systems, which Mm. is where I was finally. Uh, And I had some health issues and was getting really quite worn out, maybe just getting a bit old. Um, (laughs) A lot of music teachers you'll actually find um, struggle with just the physicality of the role mm. um, and so we lose voice we lose our voices and we it's really quite a draining role much as I loved doing that work uh, so it got to the point we thought oh, I probably need to um, take a bit of a career change uh, and I'd always wanted to look into applied linguistics actually um, it was just but and in fact I should mention my uncle John who's um, not with us anymore but he was my dad's brother, the family academic. Hmm. And um, I always grew up knowing fascinating 
he had the most broad and fascinating areas of research. I won't go and do everything because he was quite a wonderful uncle to um, have as a kind of an an academic mentor as such through our lives, my brother and I. And, um, you know, he's the kind of person you could ring him up and say, Uncle John, you know, who was this person from the medieval times? And he'd tell for hours on anything. So Uncle John actually said to me somewhere many years ago, oh, you did well at all your universities, guy. You should, you'd be interested in applied linguistics. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, I don't even know what that is and I just need to get a job and earn some money and forgot about it. And then over, over as the years went on, I thought, oh, actually, I really love this area. So I, I started um, doing my master's in applied linguistics. And I think because of my um, interest in music and the musicality of language, um, which I did write a think tank about recently, actually, um, I was really taken as I started reading about English pronunciation um, and how that was taught and viewed uh, as a language pedagogy within ELT. Mm. And then at the same time I was started, I had no experience working with adults I'd, all my work had been in schools. I thought, well, if I'm going to change careers, I need to really know what it's like teaching adults. So I started um, asking friends around my local area, which was um, outside Brisbane, a couple of hours west of here in Queensland. And this was a refugee, what they call a refugee welcome zone. So, um, uh, and I'm not sure if, I think this is the same in other countries, but in Australia as a region, as a, as a, a city, um, that you can decide to accept and welcome more than is your, I guess, um, the government allocated um, share. <laughs> I don't know that's a, not the right word to use, but there is an allocated number of humanitarian or refugee and asylum seeker background um, migrants to each country. And as a region, this area I was living in um, has welcomed more than um, or applied to welcome more than the the allocation of that um, of humanitarian and entrance. And so um, this is where the AMEP comes in. Our Adult Migrant English Program is uh, an Australian initiative which has been since 1948, I think we've been offering around about 500 hours of funded, government-funded English language tuition mm. uh, to any humanitarian entrants, so refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and then, so I started, but on top of that, there are a lot of, um, in this area I was, there were quite a few uh, volunteer groups who were offering English language support for newcomers to the town, and so this is where I started. So, did you start? Uh, did you start the masters, and then you started with the AMEP, or vice versa? Yeah, that's right. I started the masters, uh, just the study itself, mm -hmm. and then um, about six months into that, I started some volunteer work. Wow, um, I have to say, um, that's really jumping into the deep end. I would say. I mean, yeah, uh, and that's what is a good kind of transition to this chapter. Because when you read through the chapter, you, you do get this sense that you were confronted with a lot of your own feelings and reflections almost immediately. Um, so sorry to just skip ahead. Yeah. I just, um, I kind of struck me when, when reading it. So how soon into this experience teaching um, the adult migrant English program? did you feel you needed to start writing down some of what you were feeling and some of the experiences you were having? Actually, even prior to that, so my first, so six months into my master's, I think I was really um, 
my very first meeting with any students at this community centre where I was volunteer teaching, um, that, that, and I write about that in this chapter, that was probably my first um, point of critical incident, um, which I didn't really understand what, what a critical incident was um, in research terms. But I, I went to this refugee centre and I think um, in my own thinking I was going in as um, the expert, the English speaker. I, I was an English speaker. I was mm -hmm. a very experienced teacher. So I, in my own thinking, without consciously aware of that, I was going in as the expert. And then um, it just really struck me. I met some ladies there who I was to be teaching, and it was quite clear this was their place. Mm -hmm. uh, so they welcomed me, and they, and they were wonderful um, to work with. These um, It was a women's um, English language teaching group uh, and I, I yeah I was really quite confronted with um, the fact that it, I didn't know who was in my own community and I there was a lot that I didn't know about teaching and languages there was there was this whole world that I think um, I was not an expert in and that was something that was um, really powerful I think as a teacher now you mentioned it in the chapter but for people listening um because the chapter isn't out yet. Can you just give a brief introduction or explanation of autoethnography? Yeah, so um, autoethnography <laughs> auto <-ethnography laughs> is, um, is a self-reflective, so it's a use and it, it can be quite broad. It's a use of personal narrative, of personal um, reflection as, um, as a research method. Uh, but I think what I, as I became more um, um, aware of the literature in my own um, writing and research um, throughout the Masters. So I, I probably started writing some of these reflective sections of this chapter right back then in 2018 or, um, when I started thinking about teaching. And um, But I actually wrote this chapter in 2021. Um, so as I spent a lot more time reading and understanding, I, it became quite clear that um, autoethnography is not, was never really intended to only be um, a descriptive or narrative approach to research. Uh, and that's what I talk about in this chapter here, that um, it's actually written as a critical, it's to, uh, a, um, to prompt critical reflection for um, not just for teachers in this case this is for my own um, autoethnographic purposes it's to prompt um, an awareness of an issue or um, something within the field that you're writing about and to raise that awareness um, through your own use of narrative and reflection if that makes sense so did you have an advisor who was experienced in this methodology uh, I I um, became the one of the editors of this, um, Pat Danaher. Um, I actually did an interview with Patrick and had read some of his work um, and he invited me to contribute to the chapter. But um, um, prior to that, I'd been just doing a lot of reading um, mm. and throughout my master's, um, one of the um, Mark Fraser, who was one of my master's lecturers, had, had given us a lot of readings around autoethnography. But I think in terms of this chapter... Um, one of the key, uh, my second PhD advisor, actually. So at the time I was doing my PhD at UQ as well. And Stephen Hyman's, uh, who's one of my second advisors, 
who, who doesn't particularly work and research in the ELT area, um, had helped me a lot with understanding uh, this last concept in the chapter that I talk about with representing versus representing an mm. issue, and that was a real key for me and a real help. So Stephen was very generous in um, um, helping me with readings and discussion around this kind of research to understand that, um, and I think that's part of the, the criticality for a uh, for me as the writer, I was um, felt it was quite difficult to write about somebody else's um, issues. And I thought, aren't I being a bit fake if I'm talking about um, someone else's story? How is that my story? So it was a bit of a, um, it was very helpful for me to, um, to understand more that in our own narratives, we're not necessarily only talking about here's my life and what happened in my life, we're actually using the narrative in that sense to um, draw attention to um, a, a critical issue that we're hoping to to bring out. Yeah, and you also mentioned in the chapter how it's important to read uh, you know, d- different areas of research, right, not just in ELT. So maybe that that came from your advisor, right, outside the field. So when you're when you're looking at these critical incidences, it's it's better to come from the perspective, d- different perspectives, right? You, you kind of made that point in the chapter. Yeah, I think that's um, really important and I found that really helpful. Uh, perhaps I talked with someone about this the other day, perhaps because I had a long history in school teaching in um, our education system in Australia, to come into TESOL as a field, there's there have been a number of times that I've thought, Oh, but isn't this education we're talking about? Why is why is this only called TESOL? Um, and I think it's been really helpful to. And so um, some of the other work that I've been um, reading is around uh, different educational philosophy, but not just educational philosophy. General um, philosophical approaches that are used in different kinds of research, and it's all really helpful because then you can reflect and think about how that applies to your experience and to your own area of expertise and I think that's um important and I think that's what um Fiona Stanley Fiona Stanley brought out and that was um the article that kind of was a bit of a springboard for me for this for writing this chapter is that um that TESOL can tend to um uh, some areas of the TESOL field can tend to um avoid this discussion of um the non-neutrality of English language teaching, and so um, that was where the um, in our autoethnographic work, I think it's important to um, to address and to be aware of some of the different um, discourses that surround uh, the teaching of English as a as an additional language. So now you're are you still teaching with this program? Or do you still keep no. in contact with them? No, no, I miss my students terribly. But um, since we moved to Brisbane, which is um, the capital of Queensland, uh, in just before COVID in 2020, and so I um, I do a little bit of teaching in schools and um, some relief teaching, but the vast majority of my work is at UQ now. So I mm. run a, an arts pedagogy program. And uh, I teach literacies and um, I've taught some research methods and various other courses for training pre-service teachers in education generally. So um, uh, also, we also offer um, some critical TESOL master's courses. I've taught that as well. But a lot of my teaching work has been um, with teachers in our education system, so school teachers training to be school teachers rather than 
uh, teachers of adults, but um, my research area is with teachers of beginner level adult um, learners and in the area that I've kind of written about here. Yeah, so you, you mentioned a couple stories in the chapter. Uh, one was you were, were kind of helping one of your students with job hunting and, and resumes and another organizing a trip to the park. I don't, I don't really want to re- rehash it on the podcast. I'd kind of like people to check out the chapter because those were very interesting. I, I would say, I guess my recently I'm kind of interested in uh, teacher stress and teacher burnout and emotions of teachers more than I used to be. Um, did you find that the, you were, I don't even know the right word. Was there a learning curve as far as like the emotional impact of that experience? Was it something that you became accustomed to over time? Or because honestly, I've never done this sort of teaching and it, it kind of strikes me as a bit um, intimidating because as you mentioned in the chapter, you had this feeling like, am I qualified to do this, right? You said in the middle of a lesson, someone would, would sort of give you an insight of the trauma of their, their life, right? Um, yeah. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know if that's a really good question, but like how, how did you face that experience over time? And I guess the reflective practice helped you deal with some of those emotions? Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's a really important point and a, an important connection with um, the area of teacher burnout as well. That that's one side. It is a very emotionally um, taxing kind of work, depending on where you're working. I think so, and the time. And I think that's what's important about um, all our research and our writing is it's so context specific. So at that time, the place where I was working, and at that particular point in time, there was a very um, high intake of um, students from uh, refugee background students from um, certain areas Uh, and so the classes were very large people were coming from a really quite recent um, uh, trauma and uh, situations of war so it was very quite intense um, kind of um, emotionally that kind of teaching because you're not just teaching a language, um, you're teaching everything around a language and you're learning all the time. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, I think probably writing is really important and also um, uh, just that debrief with each other as teachers, but there's no easy solution to that. It is a very, and I don't know that we're very well prepared for that kind of um, confrontation. I know certainly perhaps this is that we're becoming increasingly aware of that but I think in teacher preparation we do need to actually talk about that, the the emotional and the um those those areas and the the um the nature of that in teaching so that it's not um something that simply comes as a surprise of course it is an area of surprise for each individual um but it I think it is something that we do need to prepare um teachers for that that's that is part of the work um, do you have any advice for people that are thinking about doing autoethnographical research in ELT? Lots of reading, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's, such a, it's a very um, broad, and these these volumes that are coming out from Routledge um, cover an enormous variety of areas of educational research. Uh, so I think you can learn a lot from all different areas, not just ELT. Um, you can learn some of the, uh, certainly some of the, the really important people um, 
um, Adams and Stacey Holman-Jones and um, Ellison, all these really important key people in the um, autoethnographic field, they, they are kind of the places to start reading. But um, I would, yeah, I think um, being prepared to, um, to learn something new about yourself and how you think um, and seeing things in a different way um, and giving yourself time, I think, is really important. But I, I'm just, um, I enjoy taking little snapshots of my own experiences. I use, um, you know, I use my phone. There's a journaling app and all that kind of thing. I love that kind of narrative, collective, eclectic kind of um, um, collection of experiences myself. But um, I think, and then you, you, as you come back to things, you start to um, see kind of a, a track in your own thinking. Um, yeah, but I, I really enjoy this area of work and there's so much to learn from so many different people, I think. All right. Well, the chapter is They Have Lessons to Teach Me, Exploring Critical Reflection and Auto-Ethnograph... Auto... Oh, boy. I almost got through it. <laughs> I got through it the first time. I almost knocked wood. Let me try that again. <laughs> they Have Lessons to Teach Me, Exploring Critical Reflection and Auto-Ethnography, in an Australian adult migrant English program. And this is in the forthcoming book, The Rutledge International Handbook of Autoethnography in Educational Research. So people should check that out. Um, any any other thoughts, Sky? Uh, just thank you for your interest in the chapter. And I'd, um, I'd be really interested if anybody wants to contact me, I'll um, send you my link to my my blog WordPress site and people can contact me. I'd, I'd love to hear from other people if they're interested or um, any feedback that people have on the chapter. Yeah. All right. Well, we, we will put those contact links in the show notes. Um, all right. So Sky placed it. Thank you so, so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.